Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why and how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me those ears. If you listen to this on the podcast, if you're watching this on video, which you should be, thank you for the eyeballs. Today, I have Andrew, the man, Sykes, on the Sales Influence Podcast. Andrew, how are you doing today? Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. We've got lots to talk about trust, sales, and other things besides that. I love them. By the way, those are two good combinations right there, trust and sales. Before we get into this, can you tell my sales influencers, my fans here, my, my, my tribe, why Andrew Sykes is a badass and we need to listen to him? Well, I started life as an actuary, which is the furthest thing you can imagine from a salesperson archetypically. But early on in my career, I discovered and if you can't sell, nothing happens until you sell something. And so I began what I considered to be a mathematical deconstruction of sales. I really wanted to learn how apparently naturally salespeople were so good because I was not among those. And so I've spent three decades now deconstructing like every piece of research we can about how humans think, feel, and act and how to serve people as a seller. And so I don't know that I'm a badass, but I've certainly spent a long time researching, teaching, speaking on, and on the street, being a seller every single day, like you. Love it, man. Well, well tell me about the actuary. I mean, so cause that's very left brain, man. That's very like left brain. The sales is kind of a right, it's art and science, but it's kind of a right brain activity. So talk to me about being an actuary and then the transition, like, you know, Victor, here's what happened to me. Here's my moment. I discovered sales. Yeah. You know, Victor, I, I qualified at a really young age, which was more luck than anything else. And in a triumph of Courage over wisdom. I started my first business when I was 21 before I'd actually qualified as an, as an actuary. And so to sign my reports, I had to hire a guy who was 42 years old at the time who would do the actual work and sign for it. And that left me having to figure out sales and, you know, in two short weeks and one very embarrassing meeting later, I realized I have no idea what I'm doing. Fresh out of college with this actuarial degree and it means nothing. When you're speaking to people about their, in those cases, benefit problems and how to run an engaged employee workforce. And I luckily had this chairman at the time who then I considered was one of those people with a natural sales skill. What I now know is there's no such thing. You know, people put in the work and the time, you may not see it, but that natural salesperson is a construction, not a birthright. And that, I is, that, is, that is a beautiful way of putting it because most people think it's a natural. Uh, a thing, I remember years ago, I read a study by, I think it's like benchmark index or something like that. that said like 87% are not natural salespeople, 13% are, but I agree with your definition, but wait a minute, you said something. I'm not skipping over this too quickly. What was that big mistake, big piece of embarrassment? You know, walk me through that. Cause I love to hear some of these. I like to hear some Genesis stories, some real yeah. horror stories before it, it went well. Well, you know, I was so cocky that I asked my chairman, I said, can, can I present at the next meeting? And he very generously allowed me to present to two of his biggest clients. They were very German, very proper. They still referred to each other after 20 years in German as Sir this and Sir that. And so I went into a 60 minute meeting and this will age me with an overhead projector and plastic slides or those film slides. And for 90 minutes, I presented slide after slide. And I left that meeting thinking that I'd killed it because they were speechless. As it turns out, I hadn't shut up for 90 minutes. And I got in the car with my chairman. I asked him how I, how I did. He grabbed the yeah. steering wheel 
his knuckles went white. He started to froth at the mouth. He was so angry and yelled at me for 15 minutes. I learned some new language that day, which I still use to this day. But what I realized at the end of it was I had completely blown it and I had no idea. What did you do wrong though? What what did he call out that you did wrong in that presentation? Like, what was it for and what did you do wrong? Number one, I didn't shut up for 90 minutes. I just spoke and spoke and spoke. I didn't ask a single question. I went over by like 25 minutes and didn't read the room. They were so polite, they didn't want to interrupt me. And I completely missed all the cues. So in a meeting that deserved to be 80% them speaking and 20% me asking great questions and maybe sharing a story or two, it was me lecturing for 90 minutes, trying to show them everything I'd learned in college and was very proud to know. I mean, if I, if I watched that today and I was a coach, I would have stopped at two minutes in and said, do yourself a favor and go home. So if you, if you think of all the mistakes that salespeople can make in a first meeting, I made all of those and I did them really, really well. So there was a lot for him to criticize me on. And it took me a long time to learn the lessons around what I had done wrong and what to do instead. It's, it's always interesting how those, those, like those real bad moments, we'll call them, if we can call them that, those learning moments. They're more, the more, the more, I guess the, the bigger the mistake, the more impactful, the more you learn from the, and the more you remember them. Like you could probably still see your boss's face and his white knuckles on the steering wheel to this day. I can. And yes, some of those words and you're right. I mean, I, I'm defined very much is as a reaction to the thousands of mistakes I've made in sales over the years. I've done a, a lot of time and effort in trying to research how good salespeople are good at what they do. You know, I'm a, a behavioral science geek the bottom of it and ran a behavioral research lab, but there's nothing better to teach you how to sell than the life lessons of mistakes. And so I love making them. I don't always feel great about them in the moment, but I pay special attention to ask, what can I learn from this rather than why am I upset about? That's, that's why I loved your phrase about that the salespeople that others see, I'll, I'll say the, uh, the, the polished or finished version of the salesperson they see, as you say, is a construction of all these experiences, mistakes, life lessons, all put together and boom, that's what you finally see. And so you mentioned also you, you love behavioral economics. I do want to get into the topic of trust, but, but tell me what you found about behavioral economics and how does it help you, you know, uh, give me an idea of a client you work with today. So the folks know who, who are the type of clients that should be reaching out to you. And then say, hey, Victor, here's a situation where a company called me in, and here's kind of how I helped them using some of my background. Yeah. Now, Victor, I've been very lucky in the US and globally to work with some of the world's leading technology companies. So companies that you would know, or maybe go online to, to do your favorite search, are among my clients. And the problem that many of them are trying to solve is the difference between great sales training and what we call habit activation. Because I'm, I'm sure you've had this experience. I know you, you speak in front of audiences a lot and I've seen your work and you're extraordinary. But I know that even when we're on our best days, most of what we share with people is quickly forgotten and seldom implemented. So most of the work we do around behavioral research in general, not just behavioral economics, is trying to solve this conundrum. How do you turn sales knowledge into sales skills through deliberate practice? And then how do you embed those skills and habits into people's daily motion so that the good things to do become the easy default rather than the difficult choice? 
I get that. The, you know, one of the, one of the books, I mean, I'm sure you read the power of habit by, uh, what is Charles oh, Duhigg? Yeah. You know, I think it's one of the, uh, I think that's one of my favorite books in terms of habits. And I think that along with atomic habits, which I, by James clear, which I think is another great Beautiful book. Books. And so, so it, in for, you know, I always thought that the, the model that, uh, Duhigg has in the power of habit was very interesting because it's all, there's always a cue. Then there's always a routine. Then there's always this reward, right? That continues the, the habit. You know, when you're working with salespeople, you go into a company and you say, look, you know, these are the motions, these are the activities the salespeople are not doing. What are the, some of the things you try to teach them, you know, the, the salespeople said to, to get in that, I'll call it the flow of habits and make it a habit. Because first is get into a flow of actually doing it, right? And then creating that habit. You know, walk me through some of your processes like that. People listening goes, oh, that's how he can help me. Yeah. Well, let's first talk about the sort of the science of habits, because I, I think there are some myths when it comes to changing habits mm. that really get in the way of people's success. Do it, do and, it. I like what you went injecting myths, yeah, Matt. Yeah. Right. Well, my let's, go let's, let's, let's go kill some sacred cows let's right do now. That. Let's do it. My golden rule is never try to change more than one habit at a time. There's no research, and I think everyone's lived experiences. You try and change five things at the same time, you're signing up for failure. So rather than, you know, trying to work on my storytelling and how I run discovery meetings and how I listen empathically and how I present a demo of my product, you can get to all of those things over time more effectively if you sequence them one after them. The human mind just doesn't have the capacity to focus on multiple things at the same time. And I don't love using sports metaphors, but imagine you're trying to work on your golf swing and you've got a coach who says, you know, move your head and your hands and your feet and your grip and this and that. You're just overwhelmed and confused. So rule number one in changing habits is only choose one habit at a time until it's fully embedded in your life and embodied in your practice, and then move on to the next thing. The second is you can't create a new habit until and unless you decide which vice or which habit to kill, to extinguish, to make the space for a new habit. Because habits live in time and space in our day and in our brain. And like we spend 24 hours a day, mostly practicing habits, sleeping and eating and selling and doing the same thing pretty similarly to how we did them yesterday. So if you want to adopt an exercise habit or a habit of making 30 calls before lunch, you've got to open up your calendar to find some time into which to plant that new habit. So expand on that one. I, I, I love that one because I think it, I love the, your phraseology when you say you got to extinguish one in order to give birth or rise to another. Give me like a tangible example of that, because I love that. Yeah. So a tangible example would be you saying, I, I need to do more and calling to fill my pipeline. And you, your strategy for it, as it is for most people, is to hope that time will arrive somewhere between other meetings. And it never does, because the work expands to occupy your week. So you might have to look at your week and say, you know what, what am I going to give up? in order to find the time to do outbound calling. And it might be, I'm going to give up scrolling through Instagram. I had a look at my cell phone. Turns out I'm spending three hours a day there. I could probably do with 15 minutes. And so I'm going to put a time lock on that and deliberately put into my calendar from 9 a.m. to 10.30 a.m., four mornings a week. I'll do nothing but make outbound calls. Got that. Let, let me ask you an unfair question. Unfair question. Uh, cause I even have a hard time trying to figure out, you know, what's the best answer for this one. That's why I know it's somewhat unfair in general. Like people know some of this stuff, right? Like in other words, the trade-off or the extinguish, right? You know, I got to give this up in order to do this because this is the right thing to do. I know logically I shouldn't be on Instagram for an hour. Right. And I know 
I should be this. If they know it logically, why don't they do it? Yeah. You know, there's a beautiful quote by Maya Angelou that says, do your best until you know better. And when you know better, <laughs> you'll do better. And, you know, who am I to question Maya? Because she's a wonderfully wise woman. But in my experience and all the research we've done, knowing better doesn't mean doing better. In fact, often there's a curse of knowledge that the more you know, the more you think you've got it and the less you think you need to practice it. And I'm of the view that sales is an embodied skill. You don't get better at sales by reading books or listening to people. And, you know, I hope people get some insights from our podcast today. But that knowledge is wonderful, except that, like I did when I was 22 years old, you're very prone to want to vomit up all that knowledge, which is exactly the wrong move in sales most of the time. Mm -hmm. So I'm a big believer that knowledge is very necessary, but that it's out of balance with the skills and habits that most sellers need or want to develop. And so the first thing I'd me, say is... So Andrew, look, I want to make sure, I, 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 this is a really good question for you and I to explore, and I, I think you're a great guy to explore this with. I don't want to... So... I have the knowledge going, I mean, I'm using your phrase yes. here. I have the knowledge that I know I shouldn't be on Instagram, right? And I, I'm bending that a little bit and that I should be doing this. What is your hypothesis as to why, if I logically know I have to do, then why don't I do it? Yeah, I would say because what we're motivated to do is almost always based on what we feel compelled to do rather than what we desire to do. So when you read a bunch of these uh, habit books, they, they tend to say like motivation is really important. However, motivation comes in two forms. There's that cerebral prefrontal cortex desire to change. Like I want to lose a couple of pounds. I want to meet my annual target. And that's great. And sometimes that motivates us to act. But in the moment, notification from LinkedIn or the M&M sitting right in front of me, they compel you to act because they cause a release of dopamine in your brain, the molecule of motivation. And the desire to do something and produce a result a year from now never wins out over the power of being compelled to act in the moment unless you take very extraordinary steps to protect yourself from all these little triggers that are there to distract us and have us be addicted to the things that we like consuming, but that aren't necessarily good for us when it comes to our career. So, so, go, so go, go, down, go, go down that rabbit hole a little yeah. bit. The thing, because you, it's a key phrase you use. I love the way you said it, by the way. Uh, you, you put things in place to protect you from, you know, going off track. Just go a little deeper on that because I, I really like where you're going with that. For example, I, I love scrolling Instagram because it's, it's free calories for my brain, or at least it feels like it, but they're empty. And so I'm with, you the, I'm with you on the guilt on that. Yeah, one, by the way. There's a couple of things to do. For, for one thing, I put a timer on my phone. So I have access to each of these apps for 15 minutes only. Now, does that always work? No, because I can override it. So there are second things to do. You can recruit people in your environment to say, I really want to be focused. I'm going to give me my phone for an hour so I can just be heads down and not be tempted to pick it up. There's a lot you can do to structure your space. So I'm now speaking to you without my phone handy or around. And the same is true if I'm on calls with customers. I don't want to have physical distraction or temptation right there. There's a rule in behavioral science called the 20-second rule that says the following. If the distraction is about 20 seconds away from you in time and space, largely it has no power. 
So co-locating a bad influence to your work environment is just setting yourself up for failure. Because we like to think that we succeed because we've got willpower. The truth is like willpower is a limited resource. And most of the people who succeed, who look like the American dream, overcame this through sheer gut and willpower. They had something in the background that I would call a structure for fulfillment that meant they didn't need to have that much willpower in because if you relying on willpower, you're signing up for failure. Yeah. By the way, there, there was this one study where they showed that if you put the phone, I think it was one, if you put it on the desk, they performed at a certain level and they put it outside the room, they actually performed at a higher level, got more done. So to your point, well done. When you're working with companies on sales training, right? You're coming in and you know that at the end of the day, you know, the lack of performance is based on some inability to execute consistently on certain tasks, right? And create them a habit. How do you first assess that when you go to a company? And then like, how do you begin to say, okay, here's kind of what we need to do. You kind of hinted at the first, first when you said, Hey, the first thing is change one habit at a time, but let me set the frame up and then you solve my problem. You're going to be on the company with a problem. I just called you in, right? Yeah. And so I'm telling you, Andrew, my salespeople, they're just not hitting their numbers. They're not carrying through the activities. The motions are not there. So, okay. So take it from there, Andrew, you come in, you're talking to a company because if a company is listening to right now, I really want them to bring you in to make a more, you know, high performance. So go, man. Now, like any salesperson, I would start with discovery. I happen to call that process reconnaissance because I think mm -hmm. discovery often <laughs> feels like it's something that's, that's too done. formal, man. That's too formal. Yeah. Well, you know, discovery is a beautiful <laughs> thing. But when you watch a lot of sellers doing discovery, it feels like an interrogation, like something. Performance reconnaissance. Just to customer. Over. Yeah. Sorry. And why I love reconnaissance, it is an act that you do with your customer to sort of fly over the landscape of where they are in their business, where they hope to be, the area in between that they have to traverse and what they're looking for in a partnership, which may or may not be my company. It might be yours or another. That's a better fit. And I, I'm never leading with the assumption we're a good fit. I'm leading with empathic ear or eye to understand what is exactly going on in your company. So usually companies say, you know, we have a hypothesis. We think we're not closing because our team lacks negotiation skills. And that may be right. I like to avoid assumptions and either or both of speak to the sales leaders and the enablement team and then speak to a couple of sellers. And usually in an hour conversation, you get to the root of what's actually missing. And it's never one thing. It is usually five or six things. In my view, at the root of most sales performance problems is a lack of practice culture. Because you can have the best sales training in the world and you can have people in sales training you know, two days a month. But if it's going in one ear and out the other, or worse, it's staying in their heads as knowledge. And the mindset, I've got this because I've got the knowledge, you're in a very tricky position. You know, a year and a half ago, I became a yoga teacher for the reasons I can explain, but I'll tell you in 30 days, I learned more about sales training than I did in 30 years of doing it. Because I've long said selling is a embodied skill, but the way we teach sales is here's a framework and here's some new knowledge and here's six steps to do this. And at best, we give salespeople one rep to practice it, maybe with some feedback from a partner in, in the sales workshop, when really any skill that you're going to get good at requires 10, 20, 30, 50 reps with feedback from a coach who knows what excellence looks like. So there's two parts to this 
diagnosis. The one is where are the skills gaps most acute? And if there is not a clarity around that, I would always offer the place to start is let's teach people how to give and receive and put into practice feedback on their skills. So they get good at getting great at literally anything. And now you can start to ladder sales skills on top of that platform for what I call the skill of becoming a genius. As we discussed earlier, I think geniuses are built and not born, and they're built through deliberate practice with feedback. So that's where I usually start is, can we start with a foundation of getting good at getting great? Yeah, I like, first of all, I like your reconnaissance analogy. Now I understand it better when you gave me the visual, right? That you're both looking at the landscape, where you are, where you want to be, how do we fill the gap? You then ask management, what do you think? Okay, got it. Then you go talk to salespeople. Ah, they got a different story. I do. All right, break that down and you try to figure out where do we begin? As you say, uh, highlight the most acute ones, the high leverage activities. Let's figure those out. Go from there. You And then, but the last part you hit, I think is really interesting. The, the feedback part, right? Because, you know, if there's a feedback lag, you know, you're not going to learn the behavior. So there has to be a very short feedback uh, trail. When you look at managers today, if I could just pivot over to managers real quick. I want to jump to the other side of the fence. Now I'm looking at managers, you know, and, lo- and I don't want to say a lot, but many managers have been promoted from being a salesperson and they take their habits with them. And they say, okay, now I'm a manager, uh, which is really not the case, right? So. What should managers do today? Because I think that's the hidden gem in today's market where we can find some real gold that if we could be mad, get managers to be better coaches, mentors, right? Guides, you know, I think we can squeeze some more performance out of salespeople. What are your thoughts on that? And what are, what are you seeing in the market? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Biggest single lever to pull for sales team performance is the skills coaching ability of the managers. What I see in the market, unfortunately, is a lot of emphasis on managers as coaches, by which they mean career coaches, pipeline coaches, count coaches, all of which is necessary. But there's a very big distinction, and I wish we'd had a different word for it, between a career, a life, a business, a pipeline, and a deal coach, and a skills coach. Because skills coaching is a very particular way of giving someone feedback such that on the immediate next rep, the next meeting they have or the next practice session, they have what they need to put into practice something different or something better that has them show up more effectively. And so coaching, it sounds like, you know, you should really work on your reconnaissance conversation skills. That's nice to know. But if there's no how... And if there's no demonstration of what good looks like, people are unlikely to learn. You know, we learned from Albert Bandura, the father of social learning theory, that most skills learning is done by one of two things, either watching someone do it or doing it yourself and getting feedback from an expert. Right. The coaching conversation doesn't include a seller being asked, can you show me how to do this? And a manager giving some very pointed skills, coaching advice around how to improve next time then I think they're missing the biggest opportunity for leverage. I think so. No, I don't think so. I know so. The I was at um, a, a couple of years back. Uh, you know Grant Cardone? Yes. Okay. So so I was down there. We, we had done like a three-day workshop, and he let me hang out in his bullpen where his folks were making calls. It was really interesting to see the setup. It was very, I mean, just impressive, man. The guy, the guy you know, he walks the walk, you know, he walks the talk, so to speak. 
what was interesting is they had in the bullpen, they had, I'll say about 15 to 20 salespeople making calls, right? And they had a floating manager who can plug in on any of the conversations at any time. And I thought, wow, the, the, not only are they listening in, but then after the call, you can just see the manager walk over and say, hey, on the next call, you might want to try this. You might want to do this. Like almost immediate feedback. And, but that manager was well-respected because that manager knew what he was doing, as you say, had the proven skill sets. So today when we're looking at managers, sometimes I, I get the feeling you get sometimes that they're just saying, here's what I need you to do. How do you do that? Well, I don't know. Just go do it. Yeah. Or worse, you said earlier that the, the illusion of knowledge, and that is they know how to do it, but they can't explain how to do it sometimes, you know? And so now the salesperson is left worrying or wondering how to do it. What do you see as their, their how would you fix something like that? The managers are not being able to coach. How would you fix the managers? What would you tell the managers? Let's say you're in a group of managers now, and now you got to tell them, hey, here's what I need you to do with your, your salespeople. Yeah. I would say that managers, you've got a lot of issues that you're dealing with because you're the team that's managing the ambiguity between what senior leadership wants and what your team needs and the conflicts between like annual quotas and reporting. It's a big job and mostly thankless. However, a manager's role is to get the most his or her team. And the single most effective way to do is a weekly one-on-one -on -one for skills coaching. So what I would fix is not the managers, because I don't think they're broken in any sense. I think what they're missing is the assumption that a conversation about what to do is a good proxy for skills coaching on how to do something. Mm -hmm. And that the one skill they need to develop, which is not something you learn as a salesperson that got you promoted, is how to sit with, sit down with someone and create a box within which they can do deliberate practice, which mm -hmm. is very different from any other type of practice. You know, deliberate practice starts with an intention for the outcome you'll produce, an agreement on the specific action you take, so that there's something to give feedback on. You know, if I'm practicing my storytelling with you, and then I say, Victor, can I have some feedback? And you give me feedback on my tone of voice. It may be great feedback, but it's misaligned with what I'm trying to get better as a mm. seller and presenter. So if there's not that agreement of trust between a manager and a seller every single week, what are we going to work on, Victor? This week, questions. Okay, go. Show me the questions you prepared. Show me how you're going to deliver them. And then we'll stop and I'll give you what we call two by two feedback. I'll ask you, What's one thing you think you did well? I share my own did well. Then I'll ask you, what's one thing you can do differently? I share my own do differently. And if necessary, I'll say, and here's how I would do it. Watch me do it and then replicate it. So that's the first thing I'd say. And the second thing I would say is never do a single rep of practice. And if you watch almost all sales training and even workshops, at most sellers get a little bit of new knowledge and a framework. And then they're given some time to go and work in their workbook and then turn to a partner and practice the skill, maybe get a little bit of feedback. How did that feel? A debrief. And then we go on to the next thing. There's never a chance to take the feedback and actually put it into action while it's fresh in your head. Hmm. My golden rule is managers have your sellers do at least three reps, probably no more than seven, but somewhere in that range in a weekly one-on-one -on -one skills practice session. And a lot of managers say to me, but you know, we have quarterly or semi-annual performance reviews. Those are feedback sessions to which my response is, no, they're not. Those are career or pay conversations 
And if they are feedback sessions, just ask yourself, does your business deserve having a once a quarter feedback session to your sellers? Or as your example of the bullpen, do your sellers deserve feedback on every single call or every fifth call? Because for me, I want a high performance team and high performance teams get feedback every single day, a couple of times a day, not once a quarter. Yeah. And so, God, there's so many things to unpack there. So good. It was so good. I love that. Uh, you had a lot of good stuff in there. The, the one thing that came to mind, I was reading a book called, I think it was Made to Stick or Made to Learn, something like that. Made to Stick. Where it talks about distancing, you know, separating the, the actual trade. So if I trained you today, for example, as you said, because I wouldn't hit the point because it's really important what you said. You said, we train them, we sh- as you say, we, here are the five things, here's the framework, here's how it'll work. Okay, let's practice it once, do a little role play. Okay, let's go on to the next. And the way to do it is to go through that whole sequence, so to speak, and then maybe wait an hour or two and then go back to that framework again. And maybe the next day, day two, you go to hit the framework one more time. And because you're leaving some time between, uh, would you agree with that? Would you add anything to that? Because I think it's an important thing to highlight to people that do it again, but put some time between them because it forces them to have to remember. Yes. So I think it's solving a different problem than Mm -hmm. the one I'm suggesting. And I I agree with the assumption, put some time between it. Mm -hmm. But I have a countervailing view as well. And the first is if you're just practicing, I would recommend you do at least three reps, one after the other, so you can get the feedback. It's still fresh and put it into place. But what you're solving for there is learning to accept feedback and put it into place to improve your skill. Great. You're not solving for necessarily is memory. And that spaced repetition comes from the learning of uh, Pimsler, who was a language teacher who invented spaced repetition. Like if you're learning a new language, learn the Spanish word for window now and repeat it an hour from now and then a day and then a week and then a month. And eventually it sits there because of the way that memory codes over time. When it comes to skills, I I don't share the view that the weight solves for too much. I would Mm -hmm. rather have you do five reps now and then wait a little bit and do one or two more later. So a combination of the two. I like that. Yeah. I love that, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't see that, but that, that forces the manager or the trainer, let's say it's the manager, to create, you know, certain habits. You mentioned something about empathetic listening. And I want to get back to the managers again. Stay within this. I want to stay in this group because it's a really good one. You talked about managers, and we're going to tie this to trust and habit now. So it's coming your way. Okay, here comes the curveball. And that is the manager has to do those two things, right? Has to figure out a way to develop a habit in their salespeople, but at the same time has to develop that trust. And you mentioned empathy. You've said it already a couple of times about empathetic listening, you know, and then you mentioned also disagreement on what we're actually going to be coaching on. Kind of, kind of put that all together for me. In other words, you're the manager, you're in there. What should you be doing to generate the trust? Maybe begin to form a habit, but really listen to what the, the, the salesperson needs. Yes. Well, let's start with the, the box inside of which feedback ha- happens. For most sellers, their experience is they get feedback after a manager pops into their office or calls them on a Zoom and says, Victor, I watched that last meeting, you know, a conversation intelligence platform, or I listened in, or I heard from the client, can I give you a little bit of feedback? And everyone's heart sinks because they... Oh, yeah. Like, and the amygdala just goes, wah, oh, yeah. crap, here it comes. And, and the single most important mindset for performance growth, which is the mindset of being coachable, goes out the window. So so pause right there, Andrew, because you said something, this is really an important example, right? 
Even that opening question, one could argue, is not the best question to open with. Can I give you some feedback? What would you recommend? What I'd recommend is you have a conversation with your salesperson to say, your performance is in your hands. And therefore, every week when we get together for coaching, I need you to say, Victor, you're my coach. Victor, here's what I'd like to work on today. My personal origin story to build trust. Here's what I'm going for. That when I say it to you, you feel like you trust me and like me. And the specific way I'm going to do that is by being humble when I share my background and enthusiastic when I talk about what I now get to do. Mm. Could you give me some feedback on how I do that exactly? Right. And when I'm controlling what I want feedback on, a few things are true. Number one, I've asked for it. So it's not, doesn't feel like an ambush. Number two, it occurs for me as a gift because I'm committed to my performance improvement. So you giving me that feedback is a gift to me and I treat it as such versus you giving me something that I would treat as a bomb or a threat. Mm. So with that alliance driven by a salesperson makes the world of difference. Now, so if the sales, it, and this is so good, Andrew, if, it, if the salesperson doesn't know how to articulate, you know, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I want you to judge me on. Here's what I'm going for. Then a manager should be able to train their salespeople, or at least ask the questions. So what do you want me to look for? Exactly. What do you want me to score you on? There, I just wanted to highlight that because sometimes the manager doesn't have the skill and the salesperson doesn't know what they're looking for. Yeah. And at some point, as trust is built up between a seller and a manager, the manager could say, you know, I know you want to go to work on your origin story, Andrew. May I suggest that next week we actually focus on how you listen with empathy? Because what I've noticed is a few areas where I think you could improve. And I'm suggesting that's an area for your improvement. And so it can be lightly offered until, you know, you may have to have a tough conversation and say, Victor, we've been in the last four meetings. I've suggested you work on empathic listening. It's not going well. We need to have a tough conversation. And that may be necessary, but I've found that there is a weekly one-on-one where mostly the seller leads the request for feedback. They very quickly get into the habit of saying, you know what, Victor, I've been working on my origin story for a month now. I'd love to have your view. Where do you think I should focus to have the biggest impact? Yeah. What, what, what's, what's subtle and brilliant about what you just said, you, you, know, we, you went through it, and I want to make sure people get it, is going back to the salesperson says, this is what I want. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I want. This is the outcome I'm looking for. I want your feedback on that. And then you do a nice little spin in there. And then as a manager, after that's done, that session's done, you say next week, why don't we work on this empath- empathetic listening because that, 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 whatever the word you may, yeah. what I love about that, that it's a very, it's a subtle rule of reciprocity, right? I did you a favor because I listened to what you wanted to talk about. Next week, let's do mine, what I think you should work on. And that's almost like a beautiful agreement. Yeah. And you know, that, that reminds me of another thing that I often say to managers, if, if you want to build a culture of practice with feedback, you've got two choices. You've listened to Victor's podcast today and you're excited and you go back to your team and say, you know what, from now on, we're going to do weekly feedback and all of your salespeople will groan and worry what's coming. Alternative two, which I've found to work like magic, is managers go back to the office and they say, I am committed to best manager impossibly. To achieve that outcome, I want to get feedback from you, my sales team, every single week. Here's how I'm going to do it. Every week, I'm going to practice a skill. And I'll ask you to give me feedback on what I did well and what I can do differently. I'll share my own self-reflection. 
I'm also going to take notes on it and I'll demonstrate to you how I'm putting your feedback into action. Go do that for three weeks and you'll have a line outside your door of sellers saying, and I have some of that. That's awesome. I want to get better too. It's amazing how demonstrating a commitment to deliberate practice makes everyone else want a piece of it. And why wouldn't they? They'll see you getting so much better, so much quicker. And that is why Andrew Sykes is a badass. Yeah, just that last part. But anyway, Andrew, let's begin to wrap this up. Uh, tell these folks where they can find out more information about you. Uh, by the way, have you written a book? I have. I wrote a book called The Eleventh Habit. It's for CEOs and anyone running a business who wants to solve the problem that most of us think is, is real, which is we go to work each day and we come home a little less healthy, a little less happy, a little less financially secure. And we have wellness programs and financial planning tools and advisors to fix the problems that work created. So out of our decade and a half long investigation into how people think, feel, and act, and how they create habits and why habits matter, we came to the conclusion that the difficult to copy, sustainable competitive advantage for every company is having the healthiest, happiest, most financially secure people who then are free and focused to work on sales skills and everything else. So why the 11th habit? Because frankly, most companies only attend to those things at the 11th hour when it's too late. So it's a book that describes which habits matter, why you should practice them at work, in addition to your job-specific skills, and what the payoff is for a company that says, we're going to own the competitive mountaintop of being the healthiest, happiest, most financially secure, and for my money, the most trustworthy company in our industry. I love it, man. I love it. Uh, let the folks know on the Sales Influence Podcast where they can find out more information about you, your work, and if they want to bring you in, where can they find you? Thank you for asking. My company website is habitsatatwork.com. The name of our company is Habits at Work because, of course, we believe that it's not the knowledge, but the habits that define success in sales and sales leadership. I'm also a professional speaker, so andrewsykes.com is a place where people can find out more about what I speak on and workshops, although most of them are customized to clients. And it's also where you can find out those two websites, more about my favorite passion subject, which is trust. I happen to think it's the number one problem we're trying to solve as salespeople. So if there is a connection to what we discussed today, like there's one habit to work on, it is the habits generate the assessment of trustworthiness in a salesperson. Andrew, you're awesome. Thank you very much for your time, man. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, on that note, check out andrewsykes.com, habitsatwork.com. Check out the book. Uh, I'm going to read the book. I've not read it. So the 11th hour, no, the 11th, 11th habit. Habits. Yes. The, I will check it out and read that. Uh, after you do that, again, go to Sales Velocity Academy. We've got some great new courses, as you well know. And on that note, this is Victor Antonio, always reminding you, selling ain't hard when you know how. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>